We are so honored and thankful that you would join us for Good Friday. Tonight, we're going to focus on two things that Jesus said from the cross in the final moments of his life. And in so many ways, I feel like we're right where Jesus' closest friends were on the very first Good Friday. As COVID-19 has swept through our cities, bringing with it panic and pain in unprecedented ways, we, just like Jesus' disciples, are being confronted with how fragile and uncertain life can be. And just like when Jesus was struck and his followers were scattered, quarantine is revealing to us who we really are, what we really believe, and what we've ultimately placed our hope in and built our lives on. We're amidst circumstances that none of us anticipated. And across the world, people are grieving on exponential levels. And even if you're not grieving the loss of a loved one, you're grieving the loss of life as you knew it. And I think that's the exact backdrop of what Jesus' disciples were experiencing on the night that Jesus was crucified. And just like what's happening around us, what was happening to Jesus is something his disciples didn't see coming. It wasn't what they had hoped for, and it wasn't what they expected God was going to do. For Jesus' disciples, there couldn't have been anything more earth-shattering than what happened on Good Friday when Jesus was executed. You see, up till this point, they had been following Jesus for years. And just when they started to believe that their breakthrough had come and God had actually come down from heaven to rescue them, all hope was being lost because it appeared that what they had built their lives around was being absolutely destroyed. Now the panic in Jesus' disciples seems to be traveling way faster than the power of God in their lives. But this was no surprise to Jesus. And in fact, just days prior to him being arrested and, and sentenced to death, he said a few things, all intended to prepare them for the ensuing panic that they were going to experience. John chapter 16, verse 32 records it like this. Jesus says, look, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home. And you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered this world. And when Jesus spoke these words, his intent wasn't to push us toward panic. It was to help us find peace through his presence. And that's exactly what I want to help you do tonight. I want to show you two things that Jesus said during the darkest hours of his life, just moments before he breathed his last breaths. And I believe that these two statements can help us understand why Jesus died and what he accomplished through his death. And in so doing, I believe that we can find the peace that Jesus promised those early disciples amidst the pandemic that we're experiencing right now. Now, I don't have to convince you about how dark life feels right now, but there's a deeper darkness that I think we need to understand if we're really going to grasp why Jesus died on the cross and what he accomplished on the cross. One of Jesus' followers, a man by the name of Matthew, 
recorded what happened on the day that Jesus was executed. And here's how he opened his account. He said, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. The darkness that filled the sky that day was symbolic of the darkness that's over all of humanity. And all throughout the Old Testament, darkness represents God's judgment. And when Matthew tells us that darkness is over all the land. This is a sign of the fact that God's judgment is over the entire human race. Punishment is deserved and it has to come down somewhere. You see, Jesus' death wasn't just tragic. It was a punishment. And you can't come to grips with or understand why Jesus endured the cross or what he accomplished on the cross until you first understand that all human beings stand guilty before God, deserving of judgment and punishment. And I know that's a controversial statement to make. And I know that many people would openly resist a statement like this because we live in a culture that tells us that no one should have permission to make us feel guilty. That no one should be allowed to define for us what's right and wrong. That we are the ones that should define that for ourselves and live accordingly. That we should live in a way that's based on our own standards and not allow anyone to make us feel guilty. The problem I see with this mindset is that in saying that nothing or no one should be allowed to make us feel guilty is that what we're ultimately saying is that there's nothing more important than you, your feelings, your intuitions, your needs. There's no standard to live up to. There's nothing to sacrifice for. And the problem I see with that is that if there's nothing to sacrifice for. There's nothing to live for beyond yourself. And being able to call your own shots and define what's right and wrong for yourself might sound like freedom, but I believe that it comes at a great cost. And the cost is hope. From my vantage point, the, the absence of guilt also means the absence of hope. Because hopelessness ensues when there's nothing left to live for. And if there's nothing to live for, there's nothing to feel guilty about. In essence, a guiltless culture is a hopeless culture. So when we read that darkness came over all the land, what that really means is that there is hope and there is something worth living for and dying for. And there is something more important than you. This picture of darkness on Good Friday shows us that there is a God that transcends us that we are supposed to love with everything we have because he gave everything to us. And we're supposed to love people without partiality. But I think you'd agree that our struggle as humans is that we don't live up to either of those standards. And so in essence, we stand guilty. And where there's guilt, there's hope. Where there's darkness, there's light. And the darkness that came over all of the land from noon until three in the afternoon was God's way of showing us that he was sending his son, the light of the world, the hope of the world into our darkness and our guilt so that through Jesus, darkness would no longer have the final say in our lives. Turn with me to John chapter 19, verse 28. What we read there is that after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Now at first glance, 
it might be easy to assume that Jesus is so exhausted from the punishment he's taking that he literally just wants a drink. But Jesus isn't telling us that he's physically thirsty. I'm thirsty is his way of telling us that he's experiencing something far more agonizing and far more deadly than physical thirst. What we need to see here is that Jesus experienced ultimate thirst so that we could drink from the fountain of life. Now, all throughout the Bible, the term thirst literally means a terminal, spiritual, agonizing emptiness and death. When Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah wrote about people who were building their lives on anything other than God, they called them thirsty. For example, Jeremiah 2.13 talks about a people who had forsaken God. They'd walked away from God and they'd start, started building their lives on other things. And they dug their own cisterns is what Jeremiah records. And he calls them broken cisterns that couldn't hold water. And what Jeremiah is really talking about is people who had turned from God. They stopped looking up. They stopped drinking from the fountain of living water because they were too busy looking around trying to quench their thirst with anything and everything else they could find. And the tragedy is that even though their cups appeared to be full on the outside, they were empty on the inside. They were thirsty. And what's clear here is that there's something that your soul needs that only God can provide. And if you don't get it, no matter what you accomplish or accumulate or acquire, you will always be thirsty. And even though you appear to be drinking, eventually your soul will shrivel and die from dehydration. And here's how dehydration works. It starts with an emptiness that intensifies like an unquenchable fire that ultimately consumes you from the inside out. And if you don't have God at the center of your soul, you're going to eventually die of an unquenchable thirst because the thirst in your soul cries out for God the same way that every molecule in your body cries out for water. And if you don't give your soul what it needs, eventually it will die of dehydration. Now, when Jesus said, I'm thirsty, he's not looking for a drink. He's not talking about physical thirst. Up until this moment, Jesus hadn't even mentioned a word that led you to believe that he was in discomfort. He hasn't mentioned the physical pain from being blindfolded and beaten or the crown of thorns that was shoved on his head or the nails in his hands and feet. Through all of the agony and rejection that Jesus experienced, Jesus never opened his mouth to talk about physical pain. And that's exactly what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Here's what, here's what we read in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He says, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. The thirst that Jesus is experiencing isn't from the beating or the crown of thorns or the nails in his hands and feet or the rejection that he's experiencing from the people that were there that day. It's something far deeper, far more painful, far more deadly. The thirst that Jesus was experiencing was the ultimate separation from God. 
Jesus didn't just go to the cross to get beaten for you or take the nails for you or to stand in the line of fire for you. Jesus experienced ultimate thirst on the cross. Jesus experienced ultimate darkness on the cross. Jesus experienced eternal spiritual death on the cross. What he was experiencing was the fire of ultimate separation from God exploding in his soul. He was feeling the agony of being lost forever. And this isn't a physical thirst that can be quenched. It's a spiritual thirst that can only be quenched by God. And for our sake, God is allowing his son Jesus to experience ultimate thirst so that we can drink from the fountain of life. Jesus is thirsty because on the cross, he marched into hell so that you could have heaven. He took the desert so that you could have the garden. Jesus experienced ultimate thirst so that we could drink from the fountain of life. This is why Jesus died on the cross. And because Jesus died on the cross, here's what he accomplished. In verse 30, John records Jesus saying, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now it is finished is an English translation of a one word statement that Jesus made moments before he breathed his last breath. And I don't believe that the English translation even begins to do that statement justice. Because it makes it seem as if Jesus is implying that it's just over. That his execution has simply come to its stopping point or come to an end. Come to an end. But the word that John used to record what Jesus said and the word that Jesus literally said means something far deeper. It means duty or plan. It means something more than just it's over. It meant that he had accomplished something. When Jesus says it is finished, even though he appears to be absolutely powerless and completely defeated, nails in his hands and feet at the utter mercy of an executioner, what he's saying in no way matches his circumstances. When Jesus says it is finished, he's saying, I've done it, it's accomplished. It's utterly complete. Jesus experienced ultimate isolation from God so that we could be fully loved and accepted by God. That's what it is finished means. It means that Jesus suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us all the way to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he traversed the infinite distance that separated you from God and there's not another inch to cover. It is finished means that Jesus utterly accomplished everything necessary for you to be brought all the way into the family of God immediately and fully. If Christianity could be summarized into one phrase, it is finished would be it. On the cross, Jesus didn't just suffer in some vague way. He didn't just earn us a generic pardon. He accomplished everything necessary for you to be fully loved and accepted by God right now. Romans 5 verse 6 helps us understand exactly what Jesus accomplished. It says, For while we were still helpless... While we were still under the cloud of darkness because of our sin, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. 
But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Jesus accomplished on the cross gives us a hope that no other belief system can. According to tradition, Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. But Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Stop striving. Stop trying to prove yourself. I have accomplished everything. Religion says finish the work. Jesus tells us that the work is finished. Religion tells us that if someday we finish the work, we might experience the love and acceptance of God. Jesus says receive the finished work and experience the full, complete love and acceptance of God immediately. On the cross, Jesus was showing us that we are more guilty and broken than we would ever even begin to admit. Yet we're more loved and accepted than we would ever hope. If you've already given your life to Jesus or you're contemplating giving your life to Jesus, it's important that you know that Jesus didn't die just so that you could have one more chance to prove your worthiness to God. Jesus died on the cross to be your worthiness. Jesus doesn't just throw you back on the racetrack of life so that you have another chance. You need to see that he perfectly ran the race for you. He was crushed for you. He was destroyed for you. He's paid it all for you. And because God made he who had no sin to be sin for you, the moment you place your trust in Jesus, instead of being isolated from God, you become the righteousness of God. It is finished means that Jesus experienced ultimate isolation from God so that we could be fully loved and accepted by God. Over the last few weeks, more than 80,000 people have lost their lives. And with that, there's a growing fear of the imminence of death sweeping across the globe. And if Good Friday shows us anything, it's that what, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is capable of giving us a destiny beyond death, a hope beyond our circumstances, and a peace even through a pandemic. Because of Jesus, death no longer has the final sting and darkness no longer has the final say over our lives. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus, I want you to know that the central message of Good Friday is that the God of the universe went through infinite lengths sacrificing his own son Jesus to make space for you and his family. And because of that, Jesus is the only way through the darkness of sin that hovers over your life, the way that the clouds filled the sky on the night that Jesus was crucified. He's the only way through the storms of life. He's the only release from the guilt and the shame. He's the only hope we have in the face of death. And you can have full access to the hope of Jesus by placing your trust in him right now. And to help you do that, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. So if you're ready to take a step of faith and trust Jesus with your life, I just want you to pray with me. Jesus, I confess that my sin covers my life like darkness. And I'm asking you to forgive me and release me of my guilt. I'm placing my trust in you today and accepting you as my righteousness. 
I'm asking you to accept me into your family and allow me to experience your unfailing love and a hope beyond death. Amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, I want to personally welcome you to the family of God and assure you that there is rejoicing going on in heaven right now, all because of the decision that you just made. Now, we would love the opportunity to connect with you and rejoice with you as well. And we hope that you'd reach out to us to give us an opportunity to do that. Now, to celebrate everything that Jesus has accomplished on the cross, I want to encourage you to break bread together with the people that you're watching this with right now as a way of remembering how Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out so that we could be fully loved and accepted by God. So if you've placed your trust in Jesus, I invite you to break bread and drink from the cup during this closing song, just like Jesus did the night he was betrayed. On that night, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, while you share this meal, I encourage you to remember that when Jesus was crucified, he didn't just take a punishment for you. He traversed the infinite distance that separated you from God. And because his body was broken and because his blood was poured out, there's not another inch to cover. There's not one thing left to do, period. Because of Jesus, death has been defeated and hope is alive. I want to thank you for joining us for Good Friday and remind you that this Sunday at 10 a.m. we're going to gather together online to celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I hope to see you there. Good night.